Lagos Talks 91.3 and Corporate Shepherds presents the man of the hour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome I.D. Enang. This is Navigate with I.D. Enang. This is Navigate with I.D. Brought to you by Corporate Shepherds. Welcome, my dear friends, to Navigate with I.D. Enang. It's such an honor and privilege to be here. And what a place to say Happy Easter in advance to all our very beautiful brothers and sisters who will be marking a great time in the annals of uh, Christendom. Well, you know, public holiday it is, um, but to some others, it will also be a great time of um, rejuvenation. And by extension, I'm also wishing our Muslim friends and brothers Ramadan Karim. It's a beautiful thing to be able to, you know, stand freely and say the things you want to say and have the things you want to have. If you recall, when we started the series on Tuesday on sales as a discipline, one of the things we talked about was trust and common ground. And so I'm sitting on that space of a common ground where we have overlapping interests between two or more parties to wish you all a very wonderful time. Friends, today is just another exciting day, a day of learning, a day for you and I to step into the terrain where we can sharpen the saw. And um, in sharpening the saw, I believe that you would actually have your own instrument that would allow you to enjoy the process. So if you have your notepad and you have your pen, or you have some way of recording this, please do. Because I'll be talking about some concepts in sales that you will find very interesting and intriguing. A lot of this you all know, but some you may just be new to you. And I hope as you see us trending and making this business school on radio a reality. It's a way to educate, it's a way to uplift, and also raise the standard and the bar when it comes to business discipline. And so today, I'll be looking at specific topics, starting or building from the last time we talked about the pricing principle. And so I'll look at pricing methods. I also will look at an interesting topic surrounding negotiation. You know, I talked about it a few editions ago. So we'll look at it, negotiations. And if time permits, I could step into a world where we do business and we talk about exclusivity. So um, it's a dandy time ahead. So make your best time by being on this beautiful station as we roll the dice. Today is just another exciting day. And I'll start by, you know, walking through a quote by Woody Allen. It says, money is better than poverty if only for financial reasons. And so as I look at pricing methods, I want you to assume for a moment that you own a property that you're willing to sell. You know, in the last edition, I talked about the pricing uncertainty principle. I gave a sense of how the price could be anything. What you have to do is to set it yourself. Since properties don't come with built-in price tags, or houses, or cars. They don't come with built-in price tags. Let's assume that you prefer to sell your house or your car for as much as possible. How would you go about setting the largest price that someone will actually accept? This is where I'll bring in some pricing methods that may just help you, just in case you are struggling with that aspect in your business, or you are a businessman or woman, and you've never really understood the knack of pricing methods. You see, pricing can be everything. Pricing determines how you are going to have that exchange with your customer or end user. Pricing also is a determinant of how much revenue you will bring into your business. Pricing, to a large extent, also speaks to how you will manage the entirety of your business. But principally, I would say that there are four ways to support a price 
on something of value. Number one is the replacement costs. Number two is the market comparison costs. Number three is a discounted cash flow or what we call the net present value. And the fourth one is a value comparison. These are four ways to support a price on something of value. So if you are a business person and you are getting to a period where you are about to make the key decision of how much you're going to sell your product, it's important that you listen through and also make better judgment as we go on. So I'm going to be sharing with you these four pricing methods. And as you know, this business school is more um, high level. We're not getting into the weeds because it's just less than 60 minutes on radio. But then I hope that the 60 minutes will be what you want. But I believe that this four pricing methods we'll look at in this stanza will help you estimate just how much something is potentially worth to your customers. Let me start with the very first one, which is the replacement cost method. What this method does is to support a price by answering the question, how much would it cost to replace? Friends, in today's reckoning, especially in our country, Nigeria, most business owners will be operating under this method. Why? Because if you are in a business that has to do with foreign exchange, that requires a large amount of foreign exchange input or impact on your ultimate output, then you must consider replacement costs. Okay, perhaps you are not into the forex dimension, but even with your business running today with energy costs skyrocketing, with the diesel costs having gone up, you will not really see it, but it would have seeped in. But for you to look through the entire gamut of your pricing methodology, you would be taking yourself into a wrong space if you don't consider a replacement cost. The replacement cost speaks to how much would it cost for me to replace this same product again. So you are an importer of sunglasses. You are an importer of X item, personal products. Or you are a manufacturer of personal products. You depend on one thing, the rate of exchange. You have to take on your pricing methodology from a replacement cost standpoint. Now, in the case of the house, you know, we talked about that at the beginning. In the case of a house, the question becomes, what would it cost to create or construct a house just like this one? So the guys in the real estate business will be sitting in that kind of space saying, what would it cost to create or to construct a new house just like this one? It's clearly within the replacement cost methodology. So if you were to have some incident, for example, a mishap on the house and there's nothing left, it means that someone has to rebuild the house from the scratch. This is one time where a lot of people must have a revisit of their insurance policies. Because if you do not have a revisit on your insurance policy, you may just assume that if anything happens to either the car or the assets that you have insured, that there's a great chance that you'll be able to replace it. It may not happen. But you need to ask yourself the question, what would it cost to replace that particular asset that you have taken under insurance? What would it take to purchase a similar parcel of land? What would it take to pay for an architect to draw up the plans? to acquire identical materials, to hire construction workers, to create exactly the same house that you had built previously. When you total up these costs, then you need to add a bit of margin to compensate for your time and effort, and you'll have a supportable estimate of how much your house is worth. 
This is the principle of a replacement cost. Even if you want to take this further, you're running a school. I know that parents would always frown at price increases when it comes to the education part. You tell them school fees for this term is 10,000 naira. For next term, we have to increase it to 15,000. Parents are going to go haywire. But you have to do it, Mr. Proprietor or Mrs. Proprietor, because that's the replacement cost principle. During the course of the term, you may have absorbed the high cost of power, of energy, of other costs, associated costs. You cannot continue if you're going to deliver the same quality to your audience or to your pupils or to the students and ultimately towards their education and learning environment. And so the only way to make this work is for you to look through the gamut of all the things that you need to replace in the school for the students and work within a replacement cost principle. Friends, it is no gain saying, but please note that this method is very key. It's also key for you as an individual that when you are applying to do anything within the ambits of planning, a replacement cost is always a better deal when you are sitting in a very volatile period like we have, when costs are skyrocketing across board. So apply to most offers many times. Replacement cost is typically a cost plus calculation. That is, cost plus calculation means you have to figure out how much it costs to create, add your desired markup for business people, and set your price appropriately. So take it from me, friends. A replacement cost is a cost plus calculation. If you're a business person and now you aren't applying a cost plus remedy, you may just as well be ready to go under. Except, of course, the margins that you had had cushioned enough and you had created a lot more hedge. But know that the hedge that you have or the headroom will only last as long as the either inflationary trends or the cost indicators will remain. The second method we'll look at this beautiful afternoon is the market comparison method. Market comparison method supports a price by answering the question, how much are other things like this selling for? In the case of the house, for instance, the question will be, how much have houses like this in this general area sold for recently? Now, I'm using the house as the example, but you know that if you are in business today, you need to do some spot check and you need to know what your competitors are doing. You need to have an idea of where your competitors sit and what they are pricing is for their own kinds of products. And so what do you do? We take it from what you call a market survey. And even if you're about to start a business, you need to go through some form of intel. And your market intelligence will involve you checking and asking the question, how much are other products selling for? And so it is very, very crucial and important that we ask ourselves these questions. And if you don't do it, it will actually mean that you'll be shooting in the dark. And it's important that you don't shoot in the dark. If you look at the surrounding area, for example, of where you have your property, there are probably a few other houses that are very similar to the one you own that have been sold within the past year. So they are probably not exactly the same. Maybe they have an extra bedroom or bathroom, a little less square footage, etc. But they are close enough. After you adjust for the differences, you can use the sale prices of those comparable houses to create a supportable estimate of how much your house is worth. That is how you can use a market comparison method to support a pricing method or strategy 
that you will utilize for your product. This can apply with any kind of product or service. And particularly when in business, market comparison is a very common way to price offers, to find a similar offer, and to set your price relatively close to what they are asking for. So when you look at a lot of products in the market and within a certain category, you'll find that the pricing there is always near close, in some cases close or at par, and in some other cases, depending on the relative environment or the nature of the category, you can find a clear distinction with, between product A and product B. When that distinction is very noticeable, then you are getting into the space of luxury versus what you would call a mainstream. So a market comparison method is very key. If you are considering a pricing method, this is very key for you, either as a buyer or even as a seller. If you want to buy a property, you need to do some market comparison. If you want to sell a property, you need to do some market comparison. Either way, there is something in the kitty for every single individual. The third method I will bring to the table or that I talked about as a pricing method is the discounted cash flow or the net present value, what we call the DCF or NPV in business. Now, just in case you're joining us, we're looking at sales as a discipline and we're looking at concepts under the ambit of sales as a discipline. And today we are considering pricing methods and other concepts that sit within the sales discipline. So on the third point here, we have a discounted cash flow and the net present value. This method supports a price by answering the question, how much is it worth if it can bring in money over time? Now, again, using the analogy of the house, the question will become, how much would this house bring in each month if you rented it for a period of time? And how much is that series of cash flows worth as a lump sum today? When you look at rent payments, they come in, in Nigeria, it's every year. In other civilized parts of the world, you find them coming in every month. Now, whether it's monthly or whether it's yearly, what you need to ask yourself at this critical moment is, which one is quite handy? You can actually use the discounted cash flow or net present value formulas to calculate what the series of payments over a certain period of time would, would be worth if you received it in one lump sum. That is why you find when it comes to real estate or rentals, some people prefer to get into a lease. If you're going to take a property for your business, I would advise that you don't take it on a regular, typical rental perspective, but you go for a lease. And the lease will be a longer term, say five, 10 years. That way you are able to amortize it and you'll be looking at the discounted cash flow in a better context because you'll be saying to yourself, I as a seller, will receive a lump sum over a period of 10 years versus the buyer who would be paying out a large chunk. It may look so huge in the first year, but you're going to amortize it over 10 years. And you believe that in the 10 years that your business will be running, you would have held one factor constant. And hopefully, you'll be able to pay back in reasonable form. So by calculating the net present value of the house, assuming you could rent it for 2,000 Naira a month for a period of 10 years with 95% occupancy, and you can earn 7% interest on your money by choosing the best alternative, you will have a supportable estimate of what the house is worth. 
I'm making it very simple. That's why I'm using very simple terms. Of course, you know, you can't get any house for 2,000 Naira. But I want to make it easy for you to calculate. So when you look at 2,000, that could also be 2 million. If you look at 2 million a year for a period of 10 years with a 95% occupancy, meaning if you had a block of flats, say 4, say 6, say 10, and you wanted to actually calculate the NPV, then you have to then put in some interest on your money by looking at the best alternative. You will then have an estimate of what the house will be worth. Uh, this year for NPV is only used for pricing things that can produce an ongoing cash flow. So you cannot use a discounted cash flow system or the net present value if that concern is not generating an ongoing cash flow. That is why it makes it a very common way to price businesses when they are sold or acquired. The more profit the business generates each month, the more valuable the business is to the purchaser. So when you hear these business terms being used, they are for a specific reason. You cannot go lease a property for 10 years for your private usage. And then you want to use a discounted cash flow system. Of what value is it to you? But if you are taking on a property and you want to lease it for 10 years, after 10 years, you want to see the context in which it will support the entire profit dimension, then you can actually use a DCF or NPV to drive your pricing. The fourth methodology that I did mention at the beginning is the value comparison method. This supports a price by answering the question, who is this particularly valuable to? In the case of the house, this question becomes, what features of this house would make it valuable to certain types of people? This is why estate agents, when you go look for a property or they are taking you around, they'll tell you, oh, the bedroom is ensued. That really peeves me because in modern day architecture and housing, the bedrooms need to be answered. So don't tell me it's an advantage. Oh, you get there and they tell you the living room has a separate uh, toilet facility for visitors. Uh, there's a visitor's toilet. Of course, there should be a modern living room. Or they tell you, oh, this one has the library on the ground floor and is attached to a part, a section of the house. Oh, this one has a, a detached dining area. All of these are what estate agents use to try to lure you in order to put a price that will make you believe that you are having something very valuable. And what do they do? They justify why the house is costing X, Y, Z, the one you're about to rent. So let's assume the house is in an attractive, safe neighborhood with a top-tier public school nearby or private school. All of these characteristics will make the house more valuable to families who have school-age children, particularly if they want to attend that school. Now, to a potential home buyer in the market, that particular house will be more valuable than the same house in an area that does not have any school at all, or albeit inferior-type schools. When I say inferior, you would see them as, no, this does not fit what I want my child to go to, i.e. school. So, friends, you would also find this happen even with individual houses. If you look at a house that a billionaire would have, now, there are certain types of people who will be extremely um, enthused about such houses. What does that tell you? They will, they will be enthused about it because they believe that it's something they aspire to have. They believe it's something they want to have. But a lot of people that are not, are not in that category will see it as sheer opulence. That is a value comparison. So a rich man looks at his house or looks at the house of his friend 
and he says to his friend, that's a beautiful house. But a middle-income man who sees all of that being put into one house will look at it and say, oh boy, that is sheer opulence. Money just being wasted. What do they need 20 bedrooms for or 10 or 8? What am I doing with that? And you're sleeping only in one. Value comparison is typically the optimal way to price your offer, to think about your offer. Since the value of an offer to a specific group can be quite high, and it's a function of their own value perception, and it results in the way they will price, and it also results in the way they will be open and willing to take on the pricing. So what I would like to say, friends, is that if you're a business person, this would be my candid advice, that it's important that you take each of the price methods as they fit into your type of space. But frankly, I'll say to you clearly that the replacement cost, the market comparison, and the discounted cash flow should be treated as baseline methods. But one thing you must do is to focus on discovering how much your offer is worth to the party to hope to sell it to. Then let your, then set your price appropriately. Friends, this is how far I can go on this first half. We've done that. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Don't go away. When we return, we'll be looking at other dimensions of negotiation and that possibly will lead us into looking at different strands within the box called sales. We'll be right back. Don't go away. This is Navigate with ID, brought to you by Corporate Shepherds. Welcome, dear friends. I hope you had a great uh, time with a short break. And if you're just joining us, I bid you welcome. It's uh, Business School on Radio. And yours truly is very privileged to be able to share and also learn from you. We started a journey looking at the discipline called sales because, you know, it's a subject that um, everybody needs and we all partake in it. But there are concepts under sales that are very critical in business. And so we started today's edition by looking at pricing methods. And in the first half of the program, we looked at the four pricing methods, i.e. utilizing the replacement cost. And from the replacement cost, we look at the market comparison cost. I beg your pardon, market comparison. And from market comparison, we also looked at the discounted cash flow or net present value method. And finally, we looked at the value comparison method. All of these four methods present a great opportunity for businesses to understand how to go about the pricing model. And even as individuals, like I did share examples, and I used the uh, subject of a house to representatively go through each of the methods. And so it could ease some form of understanding. But you cannot talk about pricing without negotiation. And so I'm stepping into this beautiful space of negotiation in the next couple of minutes. We'll try to look at the dimensions of negotiation. But before I do, I'd like to put out a quote by Ernest Bevin. And that quote, and I quote, it says, the first thing to decide before you walk into any negotiation is what to do if the other fellow says no. It was, it's very profound. But many people don't even think about it. They just think that, especially with confidence and I'm given a superior product or service, I am coming with a superior argument, that person is definitely going to fall apart. He or she has never seen anything like this. So I'll walk away with that price. I'll walk away with everything I want. But it is disastrous, my friend. If you walk into any negotiation and you do not think about one factor, what if the person says no? Now, most people think of negotiation as sitting down across from the other party and presenting offers and counter offers. But truly, and really, that is the last phase of the process. The other two happen well before you ever sit down at the negotiation table. 
but you don't know. Now, let me tell you something as we are going into a little school for a while. The first phase of every negotiation is the setup. What does that mean? It's about setting the stage for a satisfying outcome to the negotiation. The more you can stack the odds in your favor before you start negotiating, the better the deal you'll be able to strike. You know, I've had situations where when we want to have conversations with our business partners then, in the course of my career, at different times, I always found myself in this kind of bucket. If you are in business and you work for a company, and um, typically negotiations at executive level are very high level, and you need to go to the party with a lot of factors streaming very well, because the other party is going to come to the table with every superior dimension that you're imagining. So the strength of what you bring to the table is a function of how prepared you are. Many people don't set up the stage. Many people just walk in believing that they know it all. And that's why they get flown. That's why negotiations go down. You know, when I watch movies and I get into parts where there's some ransom demand, I like watching such parts because I pick up a lot of skills whilst I watch that movie. If you're negotiating with a kidnapper, for instance, your mindset is not about the amount of money or what he's asking for. Your mindset should be about bringing that person out alive. And that's going to engage all the dimensions of what you bring to the table. But it starts with the setup. It's how you set the stage for a satisfying outcome. You can choose to get very serious, very formal. Is that going to help it? Maybe yes, maybe no. You can choose to be very informal and unserious, cracking jokes all the time. The guy on the other side may actually fall for that if you've done some good setup, if you set the stage very well to know what is the nature, especially if you know the person on the other side. Sometimes when you watch those movies, they know the guy on the other side. They've gone through his file. He's an ex-military. He's an ex-this, ex-that. Here's his temperament. He's soft on X, Y, Z. Then you take that and say to yourself, this is how I'm going to lead the conversation. You're going in for a business conversation where you want to ask your partner or business partner or manufacturer for a credit line. And the person leading the negotiation on the other side is a very staunch finance person. And you know, it's very difficult to break finance people. If you've not done your homework to study who that person is and what he or she likes and he and the motivations and the breakpoints, you will not have a good opening. So I'm just telling you that negotiations start with nothing other than the setup. If you don't know how to set up, then you are gone. The more you can stack the odds on your favor, in your favor, I beg your pardon, before you start negotiating, the better the deal will favor or come your way, or the better you'll be able to strike. The first question is, who is involved in the negotiation and are they open to dealing with you? You must ask yourself that question. Who is the person involved in the negotiation and will they be open to dealing with you? If you don't answer, you can't make a headway because you have nothing to tell you about the other party. The question that will come again is, who are you negotiating with? And do they know who you are and how you can help them? The third question is, what are you bringing to the table? Or put in better sense, what are you proposing? And how does it benefit the other party? 
the fourth question will be, what's the setting? Will you present your offer in person by telephone or by some other means? These days, we have virtual means, Zoom, etc. And finally, what are all of the environmental factors around the deal? Do recent events make this deal more or less important to the other party? Friends, these five questions are very key. And in a setup, what you're doing is more or less providing a guiding structure. If you don't have a guiding structure, your chances of going through the negotiation is very slim or slim just walked away. So a setup is the negotiation equivalent of a guiding structure. The environment surrounding the deal plays a huge role in the eventual outcome. I love to get into negotiations because it's a mind game and it's a mind play. I tell you, one of the things that helped me in the course of my career was the fact that we get into very strong situations, either with my customers, the distributors, very tough decisions. I recall a time when I was at Cadbury as commercial director and we needed to change our route to market. It was a drastic change from what everybody was used to. My colleagues, RSMs, DSMs, and all my sales guys, and even some of the marketing folks, that's my team then, they just felt that how would this pull through? Will our distributors agree to this new dimension of what? Opening up the accounts so that our business managers could now see through their businesses. Everybody was nervous. But one thing they didn't understand was that I had set up that meeting before the meeting happened. Setting it up was the setup I created. And I went through all the questions. I asked for all the files of our major distributors and the sub-distributors, and I did a personal mapping. One individual that was with me all through this was my colleague, who was a sales controller, Paul Udochi. Very quiet moments. I'll see Paul and I'll say, Paul, and like I call him Polo. I said, Polo, this is how we are going to take this. You know, Koro will go this way. I had to mimic every single distributor. Oh, then we had a Joker stores at Tinola. I said, you know, Madam Tinola would think this way. Koro will go this way. And a Joker will be looking at this. This is what I need to do. So what are we proposing? This is how it will benefit them. At the end, we had a very successful launch that helped us turn around the fortunes of our market play. Then, for Cadbury, one of the major success points of how we turned that business around was our success of our route to market execution. But friends, it didn't happen overnight. The guiding structure was the setup. That was the first thing because we had to negotiate with every single person in the chain. I had to negotiate with my colleagues. I had to negotiate with the team. I had to negotiate with our commercial partners, our distributors. And by extension, we also had to negotiate with the board because we needed resources to tweak the entire space. So I'll tell you something. Um, Negotiations are not things you just walk into. It's not a walk in the park. It takes a lot of seriousness. And it starts from the setup. By thinking about the setup, you can make sure you are negotiating with the right person, the person who has the power to give you what you want. I'll tell you something. Research is what gives this dimension of negotiation its power. If you are lazy in researching, you're going to be lazy and you end up being used on the negotiation table or at the negotiation table. You become a pawn. Anything they throw at you, you'll take it. But the more knowledge you gain about your negotiating partner during this phase, the more power you have in the entire negotiation. So do your homework before presenting an offer. Yesterday, um, whilst I was trying to clear my desk in the office, I saw an interesting document, very interesting document. It was a piece of, you know, it was a sheet 
of paper where I actually had domiciled my offers. I remember then when I was, uh, the last job I did, I worked for L'Oreal. L'Oreal was considering giving me an offer. Now, this is going into a career path where with negotiation. L'Oreal was talking to me to run the business as managing director. And at the same time, uh, Guinness was talking to me about joining the Guinness Nigeria again um, to work under my, my boss, then Shinya Deji. And what I did was to put together a document that detailed everything. So I started from my Cadbury time, base salary, and all what as commercial director. I put everything down there. Then the next was Samsung. I put, I put the L'Oreal offer beside it, and I put the Guinness offer beside it. I had four of them. I was looking at the sheet yesterday, and I said to my colleagues, come and see what I did before I went to the table to negotiate with Guinness. Then Guinness was asking me to join them. L'Oreal wanted me to join them. But in order to see through this very well, I went way back. Now, this was in 2013. I joined Cadbury in 2007. So I went six years back and I also put in Samsung because after Cadbury as commercial director, I moved to Samsung as managing director. And here I was sitting in when two giants were looking for me to join them, L'Oreal and Guinness. If I say some things here, some of you will just jump off the chair wherever you're sitting. But you know what it did for me? It created a guiding structure. I said to her that I was going to share this with very close mentees of mine. Or whenever I have my lunch and learn or coaching sessions, I will show you. I will show you that when one person was presenting supposed salary to me, I looked at him and I smiled and I said, that is what I earned seven years ago. And because I had a guiding structure and I could show it. When somebody says, oh, I'm going to give you this kind of car, I say, sorry, I wouldn't drive that car because that's a car that I had when I was a middle manager. You're not doing me any favor. It's a guiding structure because you're set up. Many of you go into your negotiations for your careers and your jobs without having a structure. That's why you take any nonsense they give to you. The more knowledge you gain about your negotiating partner during this phase, the more power you have. But many of you lose this power because you're desperate. I'm not desperate about anything. Desperation brings you into a place where you drop a lot of your senses because what you are chasing could sometimes be very amorphous, could even be a mirage or could be a battle of your mind if you don't do your homework. So do your homework very well before you are either presenting an offer or countering an offer. The second dimension of negotiation is structure. I did all of that to get into this. And structure is about the terms of the proposal. In this phase, friends, you put together your draft proposal in a way they are likely to appreciate and accept. So the key questions are, number one, what exactly will you propose and how will you frame, capitalize that word frame? How would you frame your proposal to the other party? Number two, what are the primary benefits of your proposal to the other party? Underline primary, not secondary. Many times, a lot of you fall for the secondary benefits. Let me give you another career example. It's a major um, telecoms provider many years ago wanted to offer me the job of a general manager marketing. And at the table, then I was at Coca-Cola. I was an executive at Coke. And they wanted me to join their own company. And the group HR director was talking to me and he said to me, we have a long-term incentive LTI that we give to folks at your level. And this is what it is. So we put a lot more, 60% in the LTI and 40% on the normal. And I looked at him and said, the whole subject of what this is, then it was about, was some odd, very, very interesting figures. I'm not going to mention figures because when the tax people hear, they will think you're talking about now and they'll come disturbing you. You'll be shocked how many times examples I give, I get back and then the first set of people will be the tax authorities, but 
personal and also federal in inland revenue. They saw my billboard when I became Institute of Marketing president. It was I didn't put it there. It was the gentleman that owned the board that put it. And instantly they went and said, this man's business is thriving 100 times. So he must be paying tax more. That's how we think. But friends, that was just a digress for you to know that as I give these examples, I'm not going to give you figures, but let your imagination play before the tax man starts chasing me because of a business school on radio. I'll come put myself for Bigay. Now, I'm underlining the word primary benefits of your proposal. Many people talk about the secondary benefits and they miss the point. When you flash and flag secondary benefits in the proposal, you miss, the, you miss out because you're looking at the wrong things. But think about what are the primary benefits of your proposal to the other party. A car. Can a car be a primary benefit or a secondary benefit to you? So when people say to you, we'll give you an official car, how do you see it? Is it a primary benefit or is it a secondary benefit? It's a function of where you are. If you don't have a car currently or cars, it will be a primary benefit. But if, it is, if what they are presenting to you is primary in their eyes, but secondary to you, and they say to you, we are going to give you a car. I once had an example of mine, you know, a few years ago, who wanted me to come and join as a consultant, um, as vice president to help his investment business. And he said, I did. Um, give me some hours a week. And um, I said, well, put it down in writing and what the benefits will be. One of the things he put there was, yeah, as vice president, I was entitled to um, a four by four. And this four by four was going to be amortized over four years, blah, blah, blah. And he put it in there. It was fantastic. But I said, well, the value of this four by four, I don't need it actually. I have two four by fours that I use. So I don't, it's not a primary benefit. The cost of that, put it into whatever my um, primary benefit will be. So before that, I don't need the car. I'm already, I have a car. I'm, I'm sitting with um, a car that I maintain. So it's not going to change anything because I'm seeing you two days or three days a week. It doesn't change anything. Now that brought a different spin into the argument because the 4x4 then was about 30 million. And if I asked you to convert that into a recent primary benefit and amortize it, it gives me more money in the now than then waiting for four years. How do you switch it? Because of structure. The third is, what is the other party's next best alternative and how is your proposal better? So when you are looking at a negotiation table, you must know what the other party's next best alternative will be. You can't be the best always, but you can be one of the best. So what are the chances of whoever calling you out simply because there's a next best alternative? And what is that next best alternative? Are you better than that person? Or is your business delivering better? The fourth question you will be asking is, how will you overcome the other party's objections and barriers to purchase or barriers to consent? And finally, are there trade-offs or concessions you are willing to make to reach an agreement? Friends, these five questions are critical in the second dimension of negotiation. The first dimension is the setup, and that is setting the stage where you're going to ask, who are you negotiating with? And what are you proposing? What's the setting? What are the fundamentals and the factors around the deal, et cetera, et cetera? The second phase is very key. When you look at the subject of sales or the discipline of sales as regards pricing and negotiation, in a typical setting, you can be flawed. You can easily be flawed. These are the kinds of things that you may not be taught in business school, but I tell you, the business out there is a school and it will teach you. When you fail, fail, you wake up and say, what am I not doing right? And then you can then start structuring your mind and your head in a direction that will help you. And that's why we've opted to provide you this business school on radio, courtesy of um, Corporate Shepherds. But I want you to understand 
and you must tuck this into the crevice of your heart. And you must remember that in a negotiation, your goal in creating the proposal is to find a common ground. And that is an agreement that both parties will be happy to accept. So as you look at our political terrain now, we call it horse trading, but there are a lot of negotiations going on. A lot. Our politicians are not sleeping. A lot of them will have high blood pressure. A lot of them are going to have all their medical indices rising and falling. This is a peak period, especially for those that are aspiring into offices that they feel much who they are and their status. But many of them do not even understand what I'm sharing with you. They don't understand the dimensions of negotiation. Some think they are experts, but there's a method to the madness. Very many people take many things for granted. And that's why if I were to sit as a political strategist for any or some of these political leaders, or their parties, and to sit them down and show them this pathway, they'll see that many are sitting on a keg of gunpowder. So friends, time is not our friend, and we have to roll. By thinking through the structure of your proposal in advance, you can prepare a few different options that you believe the other party will want on terms you're willing to accept. That is, if you're expecting the other party to bulk at the price, or your proposition, then you're ready for the third dimension, which is the discussion. And that is actually where you present the offer to the other party. I know that time has really gone through, and I'm looking forward to the next edition where we'll talk about this in greater detail. But as you walk off today, please remember that the discussion is where you actually talk through your proposal with the other party. Sometimes the discussion happens the way you see it in the movies, in a mahogany walled boardroom, across the table, toe to toe. It can also happen in the forest. It can happen anywhere. But sometimes it can be over the phone. Sometimes it can be over email. And some other time, it can actually be face to face in a very daring environment. Regardless of what happens during the discussion, the end result is either yes, we have a deal, or we don't have a deal. Where would you want to stay? We'll find out, friends, when we come back on Tuesday by God's grace. Happy start to you all. And thank you so much for listening. And do remember that your best dreams come when you are awake. God bless. And that was Navigate with ID, brought to you by Corporate Shepherds.